last few months, I've spent a considerable amount of my Bible study time looking into the life of David. And while I was certainly not unfamiliar with David's life and story and the many, many lessons that come out of that, I realized I hadn't spent as much time um, studying the topic as I should. Because other than the life and teachings of Jesus Christ and the gospel accounts, there's no section of the Bible that spends more time on it than the life of David. And a big part of the life of David is also intertwined with the life of King Saul. There's a story towards the end of King Saul's reign, shortly before David finally becomes king of Israel, that I would like to look at this afternoon. Let's turn over to 1 Samuel 25 and read verse 1. First Samuel 25 and verse 1. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him, and buried him at his home in Ramah, and David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. You know, the death of Samuel truly was the end of an era for Israel at that time. At the beginning of Samuel's life, there was no king over Israel. And after a time, the people wanted a king and demanded a king, and God allowed them to have a king to teach them a very difficult lesson. After Saul's rebellious attitude caused him to be rejected by king by, by God, as he was the first king of Israel, David is anointed very shortly after, and in what is kind of a, a, a puzzling situation that you have to wonder about, which is also part of why I was so interested in studying the life of David, David is anointed king of Israel, but there's still a king on the throne, and God has done nothing to remove him from the throne. So here we have a very young David, knows he's going to be king of Israel, but the king is still on the throne, and he has, at the time, no idea how long this time period will go on. The story of David and Saul starts with David's defeat of Goliath, and then his military success, and he becomes a man of renown, and he leads the armies of Israel Saul becomes jealous and fearful of David almost right away, causing Saul to spend the rest of his reign in a futile attempt to try to capture and kill David. So in this story that we're reviewing today, we find David in one regard doing something very similar to what Saul originally tasked him with. He's still with a group of men watching the borders of Israel, defending the nation from raiders and marauders. The title of my sermon today is sheer folly, and you have to spell sheer my way. Actually, you don't. You can do whatever you want. Sheer, S-H-E-A-R, as in shearing the sheep. Sheer folly, the story of Nabal, Abigail, and David. And I hope as we go through here today that there's a, a more of a meta story embedded within this that applies to us still to this day. And I would most simply put it as, do we believe that God is going to bring about what he says he's going to bring about? Because the nation at this time was to some degree divided into two camps. I would argue that the story of Nabal and Abigail, those two specifically, represent the two most common attitudes in Israel at the time. There were those who just didn't see David ever becoming king because Saul was on the throne for at least another ten years. And then there were those that recognized that David was led by God and that David would one day become the king of Israel. But let's continue on in the story 
and we'll see the introduction of our first two characters. First Samuel 25, and we'll read verses 2 and 3. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. So let's briefly do just a, a quick bio on these two characters and wh- what their what the significance they bring to this story is. So Nabal, very wealthy man who's a descendant of Caleb, who along with J- uh, Joshua was one of the two faithful s- um, spies that gave a good report of the land. And therefore they were given the pick of the promised land. So Nabal is benefiting from his inheritance and he's in a land that is referred to as the vineyard land or the garden spot and is renowned for its lush vegetation. But Nabal is also described as harsh and evil, and his nickname is literally fool. Now, you can't get more specific about the role of a character in a story than to just call him what he is, which is a fool. Now, Nabal is Nabal, uh, sorry, Abigail is Nabal's wife, who's described as being lovely, and she represents the type of person who is realistic about the nature of her husband. She's the only specific woman in the Old Testament described as having good understanding or good insight. But I would argue that in this story, she represents those who fear God and understand that David will be king. That's an important story or element to remember as we go through the story. And, of course, David has his part to play in it, although in some ways it's a lesser part. But he's at this time still something of a fugitive on the run, trying to stay away from the king of Israel, who is trying to kill him. But he's also destined to be king of Israel one day, and he knows it. But he himself learns his own lesson about the hazards of trying to take vengeance into your own hands. So let's continue the story in verse 4. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, sheer folly, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him, Who... Say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. As for, uh, ask your young men, and they will tell you, therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servant and to your son David." So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Now, a couple things we might know here. It's actually quite interesting the way David approaches. David makes no demands of any kind. He merely asks for provisions for his men in exchange for the protection he's been providing along the borderlands. He's very courteous towards Nabal, doesn't threaten him emphasizes how he and his men have dwelt peacefully along his shepherds, have taken nothing from them. They've been protected this entire time. And and even encourages Nabal to check with his own men and see that what he's telling him is true. And he also notes that Nabal is going to have a feast and that perhaps in this kind of celebratory mood where they're being a little bit more extravagant than they would, that perhaps he would find something extra to share with his men. But Nabal's not called fool for nothing. Verse 10. 
Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays that break away each one from his own master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who, um, when I do not know where they are from? Now, when I read this story, I feel like the way Nabal answers this is that kind of rhetorical, Who? Who? David who? Do I, do I know who David is? But he actually goes on to reveal that he absolutely knows who David is because he knows his lineage. He knows he's the son of Jesse. He knows, whether he's playing coy or not, who David is. He lists his bread, his water, his meat, his shears, as all these things that he's produced himself, as if he's not been the beneficiary of being a descendant of Caleb, or God's blessing him and causing him to prosper, or even David. Part of the reason he has 3,000 sheep instead of 2,000 sheep might be because of David being there protecting him along the way. And he, 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 he's just rude to them. He asks, why should I give all my things away to this riffraff? I don't even know who these people are. He also accuses David of being a rogue breakaway servant in rebellion to his master. Now let's hold our place here and turn back one chapter to 1 Samuel 24 and verse 9. 1 Samuel 24 and verse 9. I think it would be appropriate to take a moment here and... Look at how David was anything but in rebellion to his master. Did he have to avoid his master because his master was literally trying to kill him for no reason? Yes. He was being wise and he was staying away. But David was not in rebellion in any way to his master Saul. 1 Samuel 24 and verse 9. This is a segment of the section where Saul and his men are after him. Saul has gone into a cave to take care of his business. He's all alone and he's vulnerable. And David and his men are hidden in the cave and see it. So in the aftermath of this, where David does not raise his hand, uh, 1 Samuel 24 and verse 9, and we'll read through verse 12. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is, notice, neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. I have to be careful not to bring Saul into the story too much, but the idea that David was in rebellion to Saul is completely false. In fact, David here clearly articulates what he has done and what he does until Saul finally dies, which is, I will not raise my hand against Saul. If something's going to happen, it's going to be done by God. Let's come back to 1 Samuel 25 and verse 14. You know, technically, Nabal had the right to not share anything with David. But David was not in rebellion, and he did not deserve the harsh words or the reviling words. We'll see more about that here in a moment, that Nabal pushed on him. So Nabal was foolish in several regards. First of all, he was just rude. There's no need to be rude. It can be, it's not like you had a bad day and you were a little bit rude. He was rude in a, in a way that was designed to antagonize the men. And even if he didn't feel like he had any obligation to help David or his men, it's always a pretty terrible idea to antagonize a man who has a sword 
and 600 other men that have a sword, and they're in the business of killing. I'd say that the larger point here is that Nabal is completely out of touch with God's plan, namely that David will become the king of Israel and Saul's reign will not last forever, nor that of his descendants. Come back to the story in verse 12. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all the words. Then David said to his men, let's take a nap. No. Every man gird on his sword, so every man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with his supplies. Actually, I don't have any additional commentary on that. I I think that, that states the case. Now, at this point, there's a pivot in the story, and Abigail comes into play. And Abigail is made aware of the dangers by the young men of Nabal, by his shepherds who witnessed what had happened, and they knew this is not going to end well. And so they approach Abigail. 1 Samuel 25 and verse 14, and we'll read through verse 17. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against our household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. So it's interesting here. The young men also are very realistic about their master, Nabal. And one of them points out that he used reviling words or he reviled them. What does reviled mean? Well, reviling means in its most simple form to be disrespectful, to be scornful, and to insult. But it has an even uh, an even deeper meaning, which is of people who carelessly rush greedily upon the spoils of war. And I think what that brings out in Nabal was not only he was he scornful of David and insulting, but also his eyes were filled with greed, all his lambs and goats and all these things he had, and why would he give them to David in this riffraff, not acknowledging in any way the way David benefited him. Another benefit that the young men, the shepherds had, was they not only witnessed this and witnessed David's men being with them, but they also witnessed that these were serious men of war and recognized the danger that they were in. Let's notice Abigail's response to the situation in verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, 200 skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sails of roasted grain, 100 clusters of rain, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So, Immediately, we begin to see the wisdom of Abigail. If nothing else, on a most base level, she is realistic about the danger that they are in, and it causes her to act, as the the account says, with haste. She's like, oh, we have a limited amount of time to do something about that, and acts immediately. I think that's an important component here for her. To bring out this lesson here a little bit further, I would like to turn, we'll hold our, our, our place here again and be back, I'd like to turn to a parable, a parable that puzzled me for years, and I didn't understand exactly what the lesson was out of it. Let's turn over to Luke 16 and read verses 1 through 8. Luke 16 
and verses 1 through 8. I think one of the reasons it puzzled me will be obvious when we begin to read it, but it's like it's an individual who acts a little bit, who was acting shady and acts shady further, but he's commended for something specific. Luke 16 and verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that the man was wasting his goods. As Mr. O'Gwen would often put it, uh, he decided to do an audit on the books. Verse 2, So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? Implying guilt, I would argue. For my master is, is, is... is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. So, you know, you look at the story and you see the steward who probably was embezzling or in some way cooking the books. He's caught and he goes out and thinks, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a plan so that I have a future which is, I'm going to cut everybody some slack here so that I find favor with these people. Here's what Mr. O'Gwen said in one of his Bible studies about this. Here, Christ, or this individual is praised, not for the dishonesty, for, but for being shrewd. He was looking ahead. There's an expression, give the devil his due. He outsmarted me. They look ahead and make provisions. This is what this is, what this is saying. He did it in a dishonest way. But the basis of his actions was that he was looking down the road. The lesson is, as Christ said, we also need to be thinking about what the future holds and making provisions for it. Now, hopefully already in the story we see Nabal doesn't have that mindset at all. He's not realistic about the future. He doesn't believe what's going to transpire. He doesn't act accordingly. But Abigail, by contrast sees very much immediately the danger they're in on just a base level. And the most basic level, her husband has offended a well-armed group of men who are very likely on their way to do something about it. She's just realistic about the situation. But in a lot more of a long-term view, Abigail grasps the situation, the danger has come, but more importantly, who David is, that he's, just, he's not just anybody. Verse 20, uh, sorry, back to, sorry, back to 1 Samuel 25 and verse 20. You know, even Nabal's young men were shrewd enough to know that what Nabal had done was foolish. And you don't upset men who can do something about it. 1 Samuel 25 and verse 20. Say, Abigail understands God's long terms for David, and so she acts accordingly. Verse 20, So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there was David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow in the wilderness 
has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all of whom belong to him by the morning light. So here the story quickly confirms that the assessment of Nabal's young men as shepherds and Abigail, their concerns are very well founded because leaving nothing to the imagination, the story relates that David, yes, is in fact on his way to do just that very thing, to do them harm, to destroy the household of Nabal. Verse 23, as we're getting into what I think is the most important key to the story. Verse 23, now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, one of the things that's different here already that stands in contrast to the story that we read earlier was initially David, when he approached Nabal, did it very respectfully. And his entire tone was if, as if Nabal was the master and David was... I don't know how to describe it exactly, but he was the one coming to Nabal in a respectful position. Here we have the roles reversed. Abigail, who's much more realistic about who David is than Nabal ever was, dismounts from the donkey and falls at David's feet, acknowledging who he is and what his long-term, um, what God's long-term plans are for him. Now, some also... I've heard some be critical of Abigail here, and I understand why. It would seem that she was disrespectful to her husband. But as I've read the narrative from end to end a few times and studied it, I don't think that's quite the right way to look at it. I think what's gone on here is that the, the narrative from the beginning has identified, identified that Nabal is foolish. His men recognize that he's foolish and he doesn't listen. And, and as we conclude the story, that never changes. And I feel like what we have here is somebody who's on the inside, who's Nabal's wife, who sees everything that's going on in the household, is more of a witness in this respect than anything else, confirming, yes, that in fact Nabal is a foolish individual who doesn't always see things the way they are and makes rash decisions. Verse 26. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as God lives, and as your soul lives, Since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. In other words, David's enemies and those who seek harm to him be as Nabal, fools who don't know what they're doing. Verse 27, And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to your young men who follow it. Now, you probably didn't, didn't, there's no reason you would keep track of the numbers here, but at the beginning the story relates that Nabal has 3,000 sheep. And if you recall, it lists specifically what Abigail puts together as like a peace offering to bring to David so that David doesn't kill all the men. She dressed, there were five goats already dressed, or five sheep already dressed, and that's it. Nabal had 3,000 sheep, and all it took was five 
to please David. Just a tiny amount could have helped a very greedy man avoid a whole lot of problems. And I think it's possible that if Abigail had even just stopped here, if she had done this thing, treated David respectfully, that he probably would have relented at that moment. In fact, I would argue that the narrative kind of implies that. But she goes on. And this is where I think the most important lesson of this entire story comes out. Verse 28. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord. Now notice, she is keenly aware of what God has promised to David in some detail. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord, so she's talking about God will certainly make for my Lord, who is David in this case, an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has arisen to pursue you and seek your life, referring to Saul, but the, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over all Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Here in Abigail's comments, we have a number of very interesting things. She fully understands and acknowledges that David fights the battles of the Lord. She also notices here, and she makes a reference here in verse 29, back to David's God-given victory over Goliath, well aware of his history. And the messages from Abigail's words are also making a theological case, making it clear David's position in God's sight. And that is the most important perspective at all. We have how Nabal views him. We have how some of the other people of Israel view him. We know how Saul views him. We know how Abigail views him. But the most important insight is what is God? How does God view David, and how does God see his future? Hold your place here, and let's turn to Psalms 89. Psalm 89, and we'll read verses 19 through 23. Clearly here in the middle of a psalm, but here we have, under no uncertain terms, how God views David. Verse 19. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established. Also, my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the sons of the wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. What God's saying here fundamentally is, I have chosen David. I have strengthened his hand. I have plans for him and how he's going to rule the nation. And his enemies, you don't want to be one of them. This is the key here. The difference between Abigail and Nabal was that Abigail recognized that David was the anointed of the Lord and that no matter what the conditions may look like, David was protected by God used by God, and was going to be the king of Israel. You see, Nabal wasn't just foolish about a, to a, a rough man who could do something about it. He was foolish because he scorned and reviled the future king of Israel. 
That's hands down the most foolish thing he could have done, as we learn from the psalm. Let's come back to 1 Samuel 25 and verse 32. First Samuel 25, we'll pick it up back in verse 32. You know, the nation at the time really was divided into people who could only see Saul as the king and David on the run. And they couldn't envision a scenario in which David would one day be king. What's taking so long? It's been 10 years. Apparently David's never going to be king. And you conclude that Saul, after he dies, will be succeeded by his own sons and his, his, uh, his family will not go away. But David understood that he had to be patient and wait on God. You know, Abigail's wisdom and insight and recognition of God's long-term plans save not only her husband Nabal, at least temporarily, and her household, but she also prevented David from taking some vengeance into her own hand. And she says, this is something you're going to regret later if you act through on it. Verse 32, then David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. David knew better. He knew that God was going to take care of these kinds of things. Verse 34, For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought to him, And she said to him, go in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. You know, it's hard to say if Abigail would have known this or not, but she might have suspected it. She was always safe. David wasn't coming down to kill the women and the children. He was going to kill the men. But Abigail, being wise and understanding, acted not only on her own behalf, but also for those of the household of Nabal, including her husband. Verse 36, now, we have a scene here where Nabal is holding a feast fit for a king, completely unaware of what's just happened in the background and how close he's come to death. Verse 36, now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about 10 days notice that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. I think it's very important to note in this story that it was God who struck down Nabal. At at the end, though everybody had to learn some lessons, particularly David in one sense, God ended up working out the way things they need the, the way things needed to be. He made a judgment and Nabal was not worthy. In fact, uh, we won't we won't go into it. But it reminds me very much of the Neo-Babylonians celebrating in in Babylon and pulling out the temple uh, the temple dishes and things and then the handwriting appears writing many many tekel you farce and you have been found you've been weighed and found wanting. Nabal who was partying himself was weighed and found wanting. And God is the one who struck him. Let's turn to one more scripture here. Luke 21 and verse 34. You can st- yeah, still hold your place. We'll come back for one last scripture. Luke 21 and verse 34. A well-known scripture. 
But I think as we begin to extrapolate, extrapolate our own lessons out of the story, go a little bit meta on it, if you will, what's the larger implication here? Well, it's recognize what God's doing and who he's doing it through. Um, be aware of the signs and the times and what's going on around you and believe that God is going to bring about what he's going to bring about. And in Luke 21, verses 34 through 36, a warning. But take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Let's finish our story in 1 Samuel 25, in verse 39. 1 Samuel 25 and verse 39. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, and I think this is, David is very insightful and makes draws good conclusions. He says, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his, on his own head, and David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as wife. You know, Nabal lived at a time when the future king of Israel guarded and protected all his possessions so that he prospered. But he was unthankful, greedy, and foolish. In his hubris, he reviled the future king of Israel. Applying this attitude to our time now at the end of the age, let's look at one final scripture in conclusion in 2 Peter 3 and verse 1. 2 Peter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. When I went through the story, I, I tend to go through a story multiple times, because each time a little something comes out that's fascinating. But the longer I went through it, the more I realized how relevant this line of reasoning or this story and the lessons in it contain apply to us still to this day. Second Peter 3 and verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, and both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may, may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and in the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. In other words, he's basically saying the Bible. That's, you take those, those, what he's describing there. And he's reminding everybody of the words that have been recorded in the Bible and remember what's in there. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the word that then existed perished, or sorry, the world, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, reminding them that God has intervened before in catastrophic ways. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Brethren, we live in a time where the kings, the nobles, and the merchants of our world right now, our modern world, have concluded that either God doesn't exist, that God doesn't care, or at least that God isn't going to do anything about what's going on right now. They're going to find out, just like Nabal did, that there is a well-armed future king of earth who's going to ride out with his, on his, with his army to enact vengeance on the wicked. 
Let's be like Abigail and recognize this fact and embrace this soon coming reality.